As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry and today I am joined by one of the foremost experts on the United States women's national team. It's Meg Linehan. Meg, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. And second of all, right off the top, I want to congratulate you for being named to the inaugural Women's International Champions Cup Best 11 as one of the people recognized for doing an incredible amount to advance women's soccer. How crazy cool is that? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been fun because I will actually admit to you, like when I first started thinking about taking this job at The Athletic, like one of the big sticking points for me was like when I worked at the NWSL, I could hide behind like the at NWSL handle, right? Like it wasn't me personally. So today is a fun test of me um, needing to understand that I'm going to be in the spotlight and get some attention put on me, which I don't always handle super well. So, I mean, still, though, like, I mean, you look at that list um, from a player point of view, from an executive point of view, it's just like it's really quite the list. And I'm extremely honored to be on that 11, especially just being the only journalist on it as well. It is a stacked list. I mean, Jill Ellis is on there. Megan Rapino is on there. And again, the guest on today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is on there. Meg, we had uh, recently a United States women's national team game. And I I don't know if listeners who are maybe still in a Thanksgiving food-induced coma or maybe just weren't aware that it was happening this past Friday, they might have missed it. It was a rematch against the Netherlands. It was a a rematch of the 2019 Women's World Cup final with the exact same scoreline as that game had. It was the U.S. winning 2 to nothing. You and I are going to talk about that game, getting into the nitty gritty details from that two nothing win. We're talking about players and debuts and goals, maybe even some tactics in there too. I also want us to talk about some more big picture stuff about the women's national team and what they're doing right now under Vlatko Endonovsky. But first, again, let's start with the game itself. As I said, it's a two goal win for the United States. We saw some familiar faces and got a look at a couple of new ones for you overall on a macro level. What did you think of this performance from the U.S. playing their first game in eight months? 
Yeah, I mean, it was really funny the week before, you know, I did my my podcast and just kind of was on with John Halloran, who also covers the team. And we were both kind of like, we don't have expectations from this game. Like they have not played in a really long time. Like for us, we're not looking at a potential result. We're looking at how they look, how they, you know, just in terms of fitness, even like people are going to be all over the map. So mentally, I had already been like, I don't really care if they win this game or not. Right. And then they obviously go in and it was not necessarily like a perfect performance. I don't think this team is ever going to have a performance that they, they deem perfect, but I mean, I think the expectations were lowered and then they just were like, Oh, that was a mistake on your part. Like that was very, very silly of you to think that we were going to take our foot off the pedal because they came in and yeah, it was not perfect, but just in terms of the organization, there was a clear plan, right? Like, the high press was working, the the trigger points were on point. Like it was just like, oh right, this is the number one team in the world. And we were we were going in and thinking like, well, let's be reasonable in how we approach this game. And they were like, no, no, that's not how we operate. To throw out a couple of stats, the US had thirty eight percent possession in this game. But they controlled the game, or at least I thought watching this game on Friday in my Thanksgiving food induced coma. They controlled the game without the ball, and that's not an easy thing to do. They didn't allow the Netherlands to register a shot on target in the entire game and only allowed a shot, period, late, late in the second half. And you mentioned there just a minute ago the the approach, the, the designated, defined approach that the U.S. took to this game. What do you think that is under Vlako Endonovsky? What do you think he's trying to get this team to look like on the field? I mean, this is really just... We're now in the era of Vlatko, right? And I think that people who have covered him in the NWSL, you know, I, I have jokingly referred to him before as kind of like the Leslie Nope of women's soccer, right? Like he comes in here and he's extremely prepared. He's got binders. He's got <laughs> data. He's, you know, like he is ready to go and he is so detail oriented. But I think what is really exciting is to finally see Flacco get this chance to kind of show off how his preparation for a game is going to pay off because yes, you do have players at different levels of fitness. You have players that are in England and players who haven't played for a while. And so to balance all that stuff and to say, okay, like we are going to basically work within a system in a way that this team, like we're starting to see it. We were starting to see it back in She Believes Cup, right? Like before the shutdown, all that kind of stuff. But like, this is really the first example of seeing how Vlako Andonovsky is going to bring a system-based play to the U.S. national team, which is not necessarily something that we have seen before for this team. But that that is, you know, like that high line of pressure, the fact that forwards are going to have defensive responsibilities. Um, the fact that, you know, like the midfield it's not like he changed a lot of pieces, right? Like in terms of that starting 11, only two changes from the World Cup final, and those both came on the forward line. But just what players are being asked to do, I think is a little bit different than what we have previously seen 2019 and before. You mentioned those couple of changes. It's Megan Rapinoe, who wasn't in this camp on the the roster at all with the U.S., and then Alex Morgan, who didn't start as well. She came in and started the second 45 minutes for the U.S. In place of those two players in the front line, was Kristen Press playing as the striker and Lynn Williams playing on the right side. How did you think the different-looking front three did on Friday? Because I'm going to be honest, I thought they were really, really good. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure we're going to get into Lynn Williams kind of and what she brings to this team, but I mean, I think, you know, that's that 
again, one of my main takeaways from this game is just like how terrifying the U.S. Women's National Team really is when you think about it. And the depth of that forward line is terrifying, right? I mean, the fact that Kristen Preston can step into this forward line, someone like Lynn Williams, who I think, you know, we're going to get into this, but I think does bring a huge amount um, to the defense, like to the system itself, right? So, I mean, I think that's really the exciting thing is that there are going to be players that you can flip in and out and also like maybe even design your starting 11 based on the team that you're facing, right? Like we might not necessarily have this kind of core 11 or core starting three on the forward line. You can actually kind of like figure out, okay, is Lynn Williams going to bring something to the left wing here? You know, would it make more sense to even start considering someone like Sophia Smith, right? Who got her debut. So that, that to me is kind of the big thing of just, there are so many pieces that Vlaco has to play with on this forward line. But I really thought, you know, Kristen Press has been asked to step into that true, like number nine role. And, and we were seeing that in Olympic qualifying, we were seeing it a little bit in She Believes Cup. Um, and that's kind of, I think the one remaining question is like, in terms of who steps into that true number nine role, if Alex Morgan is not ready to be at like a pure starting level though I think she is going to absolutely make a claim for that position back by the time the Olympics roll around do you think there's a noticeable downtick in in player quality between Alex Morgan and Kristen Press I mean I think ultimately the the best possible um result is that you get both of them on the field at the same time like honestly I think that's where the strongest uh option is but also I think that's been something that the team has been waiting for for a really long time. And obviously, you know, in the, in the previous versions of this team, like Heath Morgan and Rapino were really locked in to that starting three. And I think that there was a, a bit of a system of play there in terms of like, I mean, you, you go back to the world cup in 2019 and Alex Morgan's role was basically just to sacrifice her body. Right. And in this kind of hold up play in order to free up Rapino and Heath and, and get ball cycled in. Um, and I think that under Andonovsky, if you have Morgan and Press on the field at the same time, there's maybe a different approach to using those two players at the same time. It's not a, it's not an easy solution. There are too many good players to fit in. <laughs> I mean, it's a champagne problem, right? This is this is a good problem for Vlatko to be having. Thinking about that Netherlands game specifically, when I watched the front three of Lynn Williams, of Christian Press as the number nine, and of Tobin Heath playing on one of the wings. It was interchangeable. And so the way I just described it wasn't necessarily accurate for the entire 45 minutes that those three players played together. At times, it was Kristen Press moving wide and Lynn Williams moving into that number nine spot. At other times, it was Tobin mm-hmm. Heath coming inside from the left onto a right foot, which is not, we don't usually see her on the left side. And so that was something different that I enjoyed watching. But I think the key part of what made that interchangeable front three work was Lynn Williams. She's capable of playing out wide or in the middle of the field. And again, when I say out wide, that's either side. I thought she was a game changer in this game. No single Dutch defender could handle her or stop her in the open field. First of all, I want your thoughts on her. And also, why hasn't she been playing consistent minutes for the U.S. over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, I am definitely in the Lynn Williams appreciator camp. You know, and I think What's really interesting to me is that there's so much discussion about her shot selection and, and, you know, 
I think she gets one bad shot off and then suddenly she's like lost all usefulness to a lot of people. And it's just like, she brings so much to this team. And I think she also just fits what Vlako Andonovsky is trying to do with this team in a way that most other forwards don't. And it's more than just the fact that she can stretch back lines. Like she is, she's so crafty and intelligent when it comes to making runs, when it comes to setting up other players. So like I am firmly in the Lynn Williams brings something to this team and brings a specific skill set to this team. And like, yes, could she use to improve that the the decision making when it comes to shots, but also like we've seen it in the NWSL for a really long time. She has always been a league leader in terms of shots. And it has not gone poorly for the North Carolina courage. I'll put it that way. The courage are like slightly recognized for being one of the most successful teams in the NWSL, right? And part of that is Lynn Williams. So, I mean, I do really think that she's got a legit claim on a roster spot on this team and bringing something specific to this forward line. Does it make sense for every single match? Maybe not, but I think that she's got something that is important and also that that Vlako Andonovsky clearly values too. So yes, I think the question then becomes is, do, like, is there a, is there a path forward for her to get more significant minutes as you're trying to get Alex Morgan back into full fitness, right? As you've got Press and Heath and Derry were getting Megan Rapino back at some point in 2021, right? Carly Lloyd still in the picture for forwards. Mal Pugh, like, again, there are just so many players and so many options, and so this becomes the question of: Are we going to see a more consistent front three? Because over the the span of you know, what we got in terms of games for 2020, there were some like pieces getting moved in and out, especially as Vlako Andonovsky was getting a chance to look at players who were not Alex Morgan. If if tomorrow Vlako Andonovsky takes a job with the National Park Service and Meg Linehan is <laughs> named the coach of this women's national team, who's your starting front three? Because I'm asking you this question. I'm asking you this question because I, I can't answer it on my own. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, first of all, like, this is the joy of my job, right, is I get to be kind of like backseat driver, right? I also only see, you know, I, I like to, to think maybe 10% of what Vlako Andonovsky's seeing. Like, he's seeing video, he's seeing, he's also watching the game in a completely different fashion than I am. But, you know, I think that it depends on, like, A, who's in full fitness, because, like, I would have Alex Morgan as my starting number nine, if she's at full fitness, like let's say for the Olympics, right? If she's at full fitness, she's my starting number nine. But then I also think I, I am trying to get Kristen press on the field with her at the exact same time. And then the question becomes who's on the other wing and whether that's Williams, Heath, maybe even Rapina, like depending on the opponent. Like, I think that's generally my approach, but like there are so many decisions that have to play into this where we only kind of have, you know, a small window into most of the data that Black is working with. You're ready for your introductory press conference. That's that's just top notch, <laughs> top notch sidestepping. I'm kidding. That was that was a well reasoned, well uh, well thought out answer. Moving us back into midfield. Manchester City midfielder Rose Lavelle scored the US's first goal in this game. She helps win the ball back when the US are back defending in their own half. Then she gets forward into the attacking half, gets on the ball after she runs forward with Kristen Press. And, and Lavelle gets on the ball, cuts it onto her left foot, and scores an absolute beauty from just inside the box. I think there's a strong argument to be made that Lavelle is the most important attacking player in the pool because she brings such an awesome 
kind of unique skill set. Am I way off on that or could that actually be the case? No, I think I think that's legit. I mean, I've been I've been waiting for Roosevelt to like truly ascend to her final form since she was at Wisconsin, right? Like, I mean, and it's not just because the Boston Breakers had the number one draft pick when she came into the NWSL. Like, I think a lot of people have been looking at her as that player that you can build around creatively on this team. And, you know, again, <laughs> what's funny is you described her as uh, Manchester City midfielder, and technically she's been, like, stuck on the left wing <laughs> for Manchester City, which has been a real point of uh, distress for people watching both Manchester City and as U.S. Women's National Team fans. But, you know, I think that what she brings to the center of the field, and again, like, you want to talk about players kind of flipping in and out of roles, that midfield is also excellent at figuring out, okay, Rose is is back making a defensive play, Sam Mewis can creep up, or Earth comes up on set plays, right? Like, there are... Like, the joy of the U.S. Women's National Team is that these relationships are being built, and no matter how much time is off, like, those connections are still working at at high levels, and I think we saw that against the Netherlands, but especially, I mean, Roosevelt is, is still, I think, a player that the U.S. Women's National Team has to build around. Not that I don't think Rose Lavelle could do a, a good job at left wing, because I'm sure, I'm sure she can, and I think her skill set actually translates to that spot pretty okay. But why? Do you know why she's playing out wide left for Manchester City? Or, or are we all sort of confounded and confused about this? I mean, again, it's kind of like the problem of a stacked roster yeah. and you want to get your 11 best players onto the field. So that's that's kind of like the leading concept is that that midfield, especially for Manchester City, is just was already so deep. And then you add in both Sam Mewis and Rose Lavelle at the same time. And it's just like someone has to go somewhere. And Lavelle was the winner of that competition. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking at another midfielder that plays in this game, we got another look at Christy Mewis with the national team for the first time in more than six years. She comes on for Rose Lavelle in the 61st minute and then goes on to score a lovely goal in the 70th minute to extend the United States lead. I want to talk about how or if Christy Mewis fits into that midfield group that is so strong as you're just talking about. But first, can you tell me some of Christy Mewis's story for, for me and for <laughs> listeners who might not be super familiar with her or her career? Yeah, I mean, Christy Mewis is really, I think, one of the best stories of 2020. I mean, came she's been in the league since the first year when it was fun. You know, post-game, I was asking Vlaco about her goal, and the fact that I was actually at the last time she scored a goal for the national team, it was at Gillette Stadium in Massachusetts in June 2013. 
right? When she was basically being tested out as a left back, uh, as a possible conversion by Tom Sermani, um, scored a goal. Vlaco was the one that drafted her into the NWSL for FC Kansas City. So she's been around. She's a product of BC, you know, has had multiple injuries that have ended seasons, right? Bounces around a whole bunch of trades, finally finds a spot in Houston, comes back to full health, and then you get this just like she she has said multiple times this year, like I basically had to make the decision of if I was comfortable being like a decent player or if I really wanted to commit to to making the national team again, to being that kind of excellent player, to being a, a player that a team can build around. And she makes that commitment post ACL tear and then Houston Dash win the Challenge Cup, but also Christy Mewis gets called into national team camp. And so it's the first time that her and her sister have played on the field together since 2014. It's the first time they've ever been in the midfield together because, again, Christy Mewis was playing as a left back uh, back in 2013-2014 when she was called up before. So it's just so, like, the best word I can use, honestly, is lovely because it's such a journey. It's such a success story, I think, for the NWSL, but also for for Christy Mewis herself to, to go through that journey, but also finally earn that camp call up through her actual like best position, which is an attacking central midfielder. Are there spots open in the U S midfield right now? Not, not starting spots because those positions are pretty well filled with Julie Ertz yeah. and, and Sam Mewis, Christy Mewis's sister and Rose Lavelle. And then Lindsay Horan, if she's able to, to make her way back into this picture sooner rather than later, which I can't imagine will be, will be happening. Is Christy Mewis in contention to be a regular option off the bench for the U S going forward? I would absolutely argue yes, because I think what you're looking at is basically having um, two players, you know, like the the six, eight, and ten, right? Having two for each. So you've got Julie Ertz, obviously, and then her kind of natural backup that everyone expects is someone like Andy Sullivan coming back into this team eventually after she comes back to full fitness and health. And then I think Haran and Mewis are essentially aiming for the same position, and and that was definitely one of the subplots of the 2019 World Cup and also leading up to that in terms of who was going to get that start. And then I think the question becomes who who can back up Lavelle, and I think Christy Mewis has a legit shot at making her case to say, if you need a 10 off the bench, I'm here. Now the question becomes where Katarina Macario (laughs) enters into this position, into this situation, right? Like, again, we've got so many young players coming up through the system, but Macario is one that already has such huge expectations put on her. Obviously, she could not play yet in this game, though she made the trip to the Netherlands, but her eligibility paperwork isn't through FIFA yet. But that's going to be the question of where she fits into this team positionally because it could be maybe like a number 10 role it could be a forward role you know like where where does she actually land in a starting 11 I want to talk about some of the youngsters that played in this game against the Netherlands but I also want to talk more about Katarina Macario Adam Snavely was on the show last week and and he talked about Macario and how she got her U.S. citizenship earlier this year but from what I've read and, and from what you just said She's still waiting on paperwork and FIFA stuff for her to be able to actually play for the U.S. How how good, how much of a talent is Katarina Macario? And do you know where she is in that whole paperwork process? Like how long that's going to take? Yeah, so on the paperwork stuff, she's gotten her physical passport. That was step one after she actually um, got her citizen, citizenship swapped over. So like the first part of it is done. It really now is 
FIFA paperwork and um, despite what the random people on Twitter are saying, some senator can help with this. Like, it is really just in FIFA's hands at this point, but Flacco Andonofsky and U.S. Soccer have pretty consistently said they do expect it to be done ahead of the Olympics. So there is potential that she could be a factor for the Olympic roster. And I think then the question becomes, she's clearly, like, in a class of her own in the NCAA game, right, for Stanford. There's no question about that. So I think the two main things that we're looking at is, does she enter the NWSL draft for this year? Does she stay at Stanford? Does she maybe opt for abroad? Like, there's a few options that she's got in, in front of her. Um, and then the other question becomes, how much of a factor is she for the U.S. national team, like, right off the bat? And I don't know if she cracks her way into a starting lineup at all for the Olympics, right? Because I do think that there are some reasons to have that consistency across, you know, like basically as we saw in the Netherlands game, like you have a, a regular starting 11, even with the year delay, I think that there are some good arguments for having that sort of consistency. But I think where a lot of us are really looking for Macario to be a, a much more major player is the 2023 World Cup. But I think also, you know, we've we've had those expectations for, for players before. Um, sometimes they have panned out, sometimes they haven't. And then I think you just kind of have to, like, also hope that U.S. soccer takes care of the mental part of that side of managing those expectations of, of easing her into the player pool and not necessarily being like, hello, you are now the next star of the U.S. women's national team. Here you go. Like, let's just dump you into the deep end. But that's one thing that I, I do feel, feel really confident about Vlako and Donovskian. Ideally, uh, we get the U.S. Federation to listen to Grant Wall's podcast, the, the American Prodigy, talking about Freddie Adu and some of the difficulties that come with putting so many expectations on a young player. Looking, again, further deeper into Katarina Macario, when you watch her play, Meg, when you watch Katarina Macario play soccer, what is it that makes her so good? I mean, she's just fun to watch. Like... If she has the ball at her feet, you're just going like, okay. it's it's almost like the best comparison I have is the summer of 2015 when Crystal Dunn just felt like if she had the ball at her feet in an NWSL game, it was going to result in a goal. Like there are just some players where, you know, you can tell that no one else on that field is going to be able to shut them down. And, and part of it is, you know, like the college game, it's it's not going to be at the same level as a true international test. But, like, when you watch Macario at, in Stanford games, like, it's just the, the difference in ability is just remarkable sometimes. Like, her touches, her first touches, like, the way that she distributes the ball, all of it is just, like, you're like, oh, this is a player who's going places. And just sometimes it's just, like, that eye test – is so easy. And that's that's that kind of player. Another young player who, who actually got her first appearance for the United States on Friday is Jalen Howell. And we haven't talked about her yet on this show. She comes into the midfield, into the center midfield towards the end of this game, almost at the very end of it. What are Howell's strengths when she's on the field for the United States? And where does she fit within the, the more immediate player pool? Yeah, I think she's really probably going to be a, a depth depth piece for now like she was not on this roster originally she gets the roster spot after Lindsay Horan tests positive for COVID-19 during the the pre-camp testing regimen but I think it's a really good 
opportunity for a player like Howell to get time with the senior camp. Like this is, I think, the very encouraging thing with the U.S. national team now, especially with the long layoff. They spent so much time aligning all the levels of the program, and you have coaches now at every single level, but you have, you know, Laura Harvey and Vlako Andonovsky who go back thanks to the, the NWSL actually like really aligning. And players like Howell specifically are going to benefit from that because as they bounce up through the age levels and into the senior national team, the experience is going to be far more similar. So for me, like right at the moment, like I don't think Howell is necessarily making a play for, you know, like a 2021 era uh, roster spot, but I think she's going to be a long-term piece just from a development point of view of she could potentially be in the mix for 2023 and beyond. And I think that's what's really exciting is that we're starting to see some of this long-term planning work for some of these players. And and Howell, I think, is someone who can step into that, like, attacking midfield role, you know, like, essentially a box-to-box midfielder. Um, she's absolutely killer on set pieces. You mentioned Laura Harvey and Vlako Andonovsky working together and using some of the time, the downtime that we haven't been getting national team games on either side of the program. How do those two work together? What do they do? How are their roles intertwined? And how did that change or become even more intertwined during this really unfortunate pandemic? Yeah, I mean, so I, I've spoken to a bunch of them. You know, it all starts really with um, the general manager of the entire women's side of the program for the U.S. national team, which is Kate Markgraf, right? And her making all of these coaching uh, hirings and, and then finally getting this alignment process. So, I mean, when I talked to Vlaco back in October about how he was making selections for the national team camp um, back then, obviously a lot of it was coming off of NWSL, but also I guess they had literally just, you know, basically sat on Zoom with each other for most of this pandemic, but also, um, you know, as everyone else was doing at the time and going position by position and arranging videos and saying like, these are all the particular responsibilities or actions that every single position might take during a game. And then not just aligning themselves from a coaching staff, but also bringing on every single, you know, whether it's left back, center back, whatever in the pool onto one of these calls once the coaches had felt good about it, walking them through it, walking them through videos, making sure, you know, like, so for every every number nine, right, Alex is on the line, Lynn Williams, Kristen Press, like everyone, plus the U23s, U2, like all the way down the line, just so that way everyone in this program is working with the same basic fundamental, like, okay, if I'm in this position, these are my responsibilities on the field. This is what I'm expected to do from a from a coaching point of view, et cetera, et cetera. And then he said, like, the coaches would still stay on the line after to discuss and make sure, okay, did they get it? Did they raise anything that we need to bring back? And so on. So, like, this is work where I can totally see it not happening when you have games and tournaments and qualification cycles to manage. But when you have an extended shutdown and you actually get to drill down, into some of like the nitty grittiness on tactics, which again, Leslie Nope of women's soccer, Vlako Andonovsky is just going to sit here and love. Like, it's actually kind of exciting to think about it. That's what I was going to ask is, is whether or not you thought that level of communication would have happened if we hadn't had the, the downtime that we're still having right now. But it seems like, it seems like if there hadn't been that break from international soccer, the, the women's side, and I think this is true of the men's side of the Federation as well, you're thinking they wouldn't really be on the same communication level. 
I mean, I think the plan was always to have this happen, but the window for it was so much more narrow. Like, I think that they had basically set aside maybe a month, right? Like, they were waiting for, I believe it was Tracy Kevins to take the, the under-17s through their qualification cycle. And then when Tracy Kevins was done, she was going to come back to Chicago, and they were basically going to, like, lock themselves in soccer house for a month, I think, and try to align themselves. And instead... Like, yes, it was over Zoom and it was a little more awkward, but it meant a lot more time. You could involve the players in a more significant way. So, like, again, with with anything, like, you're finding some silver linings of this time. But I think a major one was the fact that they got so much time to kind of, like, pull apart the coaching staff, you know, tactically and make sure everything, not just their expectations of positions or, you know, like, what they they think a four three three should look like or anything like that, but just like actually sit there and just probably like have some fun fights about like what a soccer team should look like. If locked in locked in at soccer house doesn't become like a, a TV sitcom or at least an athletic feature, I'm gonna be really, really disappointed. Um so my expectations or hopes are really, really high right now, Meg. Um just okay. just as they are for Sophia Smith, in a measured way, of course. Sophia Smith comes off the bench in this game in the seventy fifth minute and gets minutes at left wing. Another younger player, another member of the the kind of new generation of talent that the U.S. women's national team has coming through. I thought she was really, really bright on that left side, cutting in on her right foot, having some moments of danger, even in a very limited number of minutes on the field. What did you think of Sophia Smith in this game, and, and where does she fit in, just like I asked you with Jalen Howell? Yeah, I mean, Sophia Smith... First of all, I mean, I think the really fun part of this is Vlako Andonovsky, when I talked to him about Sophia Smith, like, he was immediately just like, you know, she makes her debut finally for, for Portland Thorns in the fall series. And he was just like, I was watching her and she stepped on that field and she looked like she had 100 caps for Portland under her belt already. Like, she's just like, at age 20, already looks like she is more than ready for for this moment. And I think that's really exciting from her. I think, you know, I think that there were a few moments of like physicality that weren't super necessary from Sophia Smith in the game against the Netherlands, but fundamentally, you know, I think she is a player that is really going to have a future role on this team. And again, like, you know, we can kind of see like the generations of, of athletes kind of moving through this team. Right. And I think Sophia Smith is one of the key figures for kind of the next generation of the U.S. Women's National Team. And so to get her, just like Jalen Howell, time on the field, time with some of these veteran players, like you're just setting them up for success once the forward line basically transitions into whatever it's going to look like in the next go-round, right? Because obviously we are going to start losing some players to retirement over the next cycle. And Sophia Smith, I think, is already in a spot where you would feel confident if she was asked to do more right now, even. But I think getting her minutes in in games against teams like the Netherlands is a huge win for the national team right now. Hitting pause on the United States women's national team discussion for just a moment. I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh Pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. 
HelloFresh offers convenient, no-contact delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. The recipes are easy to follow with simple steps and pictures to guide you along the way. And the food that HelloFresh provides is both delicious and nutritious. HelloFresh delivers fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients so that you can make meals that taste good and are good for you. Over 90% of the ingredients that HelloFresh uses are sourced directly from growers to ensure peak flavor and ripeness. HelloFresh offers more than 20 chef-crafted delicious options every week to help you break out of your recipe rut. Try new things and make any night feel special. With HelloFresh, you can easily change your delivery days or meal plan preferences and skip a week whenever you need right on the app. You can keep your fridge stocked by adding extra meals, proteins, quick meals like breakfast on the go, or 10-minute lunches, even desserts to satisfy the sweet tooth. For me, right now, when going outside isn't always the best or safest or even wisest thing to do, having HelloFresh be able to deliver good quality food that's good for me right to my door has been huge. It's made me more comfortable being inside my house more often, and it's made my life better. So if all of this sounds good to you, Go to HelloFresh.com slash TSS90 and use code TSS90 to get $90 off, including free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash TSS90 with the promo code TSS90 to get $90 off, including free shipping. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's show and keeping me safe inside my house with yummy food. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Between Sophia Smith, Jalen Howell, Katarina Macario, We've talked about some of the figureheads of this new up-and-coming generation of United States women's national team players. How does that generation compare with other major nations in the in the women's soccer world? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I feel like you look at some of the players individually, and I feel like there's only a huge amount of excitement. But then you also look at the youth national team results over some of the past cycles, and there has been a lot of angst on the women's national team side as as the U.S. has not done as well as expected, right? Crashing out of some of the the youth national team uh, World Cups. So I think that there is definitely um, concern just in terms of like, are the results not matching the player development? Are the players not developing at the same rate of other countries, right? Like, But I mean, when you look at some of these players coming into the senior national team, and someone like Sophia Smith, right, who who clearly, like, also stepping into an NWSL point of view, looks comfortable and looks ready for that level of play. Or Macario, or even, you know, like, there are, <laughs> there are so many kids coming out of Stanford, too, that are probably going to play a role on this national team. But that's the question, like, and I don't know if I necessarily have a great answer for it, because there are youth movements, uh, 
abroad, but also, you know, we keep thinking teams are catching up to the U.S. national team. And then I think what the nice thing that the U.S. national team now has that it did not before is Vlako Andonovsky. And I think that is going to prove to be a difference both in terms of, like, senior national team, but also his influence on the individual development of younger players as well. We started up top talking about the forward line. Then we moved back into midfield and talked about some of the players in that group. I want to talk about the defensive group in this player pool right now, specifically the center backs. In this game against the Netherlands, it was Becky Sauerbrunn on the left side of that center back pair and Abby Dahlkamper on the right side of that center back pair. As a noted, and this is me talking about me here, as a noted proponent of center backs, these two players are downright unreal, and yet I feel like there's never enough conversation about them. Do you agree with that? Because, man, they're so good. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe there's not a lot of conversation because they don't always have a huge amount to do, right? Like, it depends on... But, like, I mean, when you think about, you know, Olympic qualifying, right? Like, we're not necessarily seeing a lot asked of the center-back pairing. Um, I mean, I I think... You know, as many as uh, awards as Becky Sauerbrunn has gotten throughout her career, I still think that she has never been truly rated <laughs> in terms of like her her true significance for the national team, I think is still underrated. But I do think Abby Dahlkemper coming up alongside her is, you know, like she's she's going to step into a much larger leadership role as this team continues to grow. But, you know, I also think about someone like Tierna Davidson, coming up and and how we've already seen her, you know, she's had some injury issues, but like the time that we have seen her both on the national team and also for the Chicago Red Stars, like, I don't, like, I feel center backs are are where I'm a little more like, okay, yeah, this is good. Like U.S. national team has always had strength in this position, I think, and will continue to have some strength in this position. Solid center back, solid depth in a lot of the spots in the starting 11. Is the U.S. better right now than they have ever been? I would I would say probably, yeah. I mean, part of it is we didn't get really like a full year to assess them, right? Like, I think the Olympics probably would have been a really interesting premise. But I think, you know, in all of the like... 99 versus 2019 stuff right because obviously the the anniversary is coming up i mean the 2019 team is better than the 2015 team for sure and i just think that as black landonofsky steps into this team as we're starting to see you know the future of this team via the youth movement come in like again my my main takeaway from the netherlands game from this team in general right now is that like fundamentally i I don't know if there is a true contender right now that's going to dethrone them in like a really significant way. And like that, that maybe means like, you know, obviously the flip between the world cup and the Olympics is extremely difficult. No one has ever done the back-to-back wins, but in terms of like being able to like truly dethrone them from the number one ranking with consecutive wins over the u.s national team like i just don't know if there's another national team that is within reach of that right now we've talked some already about tactics and we did that you know earlier on in the show it's clear to me and it seems like to you as well that the u.s has a defined way of playing soccer under vlako andonofsky they've also won every single game under him so far 
Have you noticed any differences either with some of the on-field stuff or from a locker room standpoint or just from what you know about this team and what you've covered about them? Have you noticed any differences between the end of the Jill Ellis tenure and then the start of the Blacko era? I mean, I just think that the player, it's it's been really interesting to talk to players because, I mean, like, you can't deny the results that Jill Ellis got. Like, you, you can't. And I think that she really did have a much more successful coaching experience in the 2019 World Cup compared to 2015, where she kind of got backed into some decisions that she might not have otherwise made. But I think the real interesting thing for me is that when you talk to players about camp or Vlaco or or what they're doing like first of all they all will bring up how they're doing like these individual training things right and we heard about it with Roosevelt after the Netherlands that one of the assistant coaches was working with her on that exact shot for that goal like that exact part of the field on her left foot right like and that was a testament to her coachability but every single player has a story of like yes we're working on this specific thing and it's an individual training thing And whether it's with Vlaco or one of the assistant coaches, they all have those stories. And I think that having this like refocus on individual skill and figuring out how that works from a team perspective, like these are players who actively still want to get better no matter what. And whether that comes in an NWSL environment or U.S. Women's National Team environment, but there is something about the way that Vlaco sets up his training environments, sets up the individual path alongside the team path that has players like when you get them at camp uh mix zones or you know like on zoom or in interviews like they all have these stories and I think that's really exciting just because it feels like they are engaged in a way that you don't see a lot of and I I think that that's a really exciting direction for the team and also just like I think it's probably fun for them in a way that it hasn't necessarily been in the past. Is that individual training going to continue after the fixture list gets more congested and the women's national team starts playing more and more games? Will we see that process keep going? I mean, it it was going through Olympic qualifying and and She Believes Cup, so I I don't think that that's going to change. I think that he is just, there's some, you know, we don't have a lot of visibility to how his training sessions work out, but there's clearly time allotted to it, no matter if it's, Olympic train, you know, uh, Olympic qualification, she believes friendlies, whatever, like there really does seem to always be at least some portion of a camp or training session set aside for it. So I don't see that changing anytime soon, except for probably what I would bet would be, you know, the final camp before the Olympics or something like that. Do players like Vlatko Andonovsky more than they liked Jill Ellis? I mean, I think like there is a short answer, but I think it is more complicated in that I just think Jill Ellis came into this team with a rep for being like a a player coach and that went sideways, I think a little bit, but I think by the end of that tenure, there is at least some respect both ways. Right. And I think you also look at how Jill Ellis, I mean, that staff loved her like us soccer staff loves her, her coaching staff loves her. And also for me, like it was really interesting as she was making the moves to step away from the national team, you finally started to get like a, a real glimpse of her actual personality. And I've had phone calls with her after she stepped away from the national team. And I'm like, you're like genuinely a very lovely human being. And I think she put so much of her actual personality aside because she thought that she had to. And so much of it was 
if I put this aside, then I can focus on the performance and I can, I can make the decisions that I need to make as a national team head coach. Right. And so I just think that Ellis and, and Andonovsky have such a different approach to how they view this. And I think Andonovsky is going to have some truly difficult decisions to make over the next, you know, basically over the next cycle as players come into form or fall out of form, all of this kind of stuff, right? Like he's got to manage a lot of very big personalities. And I think his approach to it is different, but I think it's also one that the players appreciate in a completely different way. And I think that's why when you hear players talk about him, it it is a much more like positive, happy <laughs> quote that you're getting. How is that approach different? How is the approach that Blacko takes to managing all of the egos in that locker room different than what Ellis was doing when she was in charge? I mean, I just think that it's such a more, in, like, again, much like the training stuff, it's a way more individual thing of like, here are the things that I think you need to work on, right? And this is just me kind of getting a sense of it. Like, I haven't really talked this through with any players, but I think it is so heavily performance driven. I mean, if you, I don't know if you've read Megan Rapino's book, uh, but she talks quite a bit about <laughs> Jill Ellis as a head coach and like Jill Ellis basically like bringing her into a room the night before a World Cup game and like showing her video of all of her mistakes and being like, I don't know if I should play you or not. And Megan Rapinoe being like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this information. <laughs> um, so I just think that like there's a matter of factness to it, but not in a unkind way, right? I think that it's just, again, like this is Flacco's attention to detail, right? Like there is a logic that you can look at it from a reasonable, a reasonable point of view and go, okay, I get it. And I think that's where it is because sometimes I think in the previous era of this team, you would just get a decision and that would be the end of it. And that's now we're, we're getting, or, you know, at least with Vlaco in his communication, I think that there's a little more explanation behind some of these decisions. To close us out here, after we've talked players, debuts, goals, tactics, and, and coaching, to close us, what comes next for the U.S.? They managed to squeak a game in before 2020 ended, but looking to 2021, what are people or what should people be expecting from the U.S. in terms of upcoming games? Yeah, so they, I mean, they're going to have a full senior team camp um, in January, and we are, I would expect a pretty big roster on that. Like, I think it's going to be kind of like getting the band back together in the full one. Um, and then there are still plans for She Believes Cup in February. And, uh, beyond that, there's NWSL is obviously going to have challenge cup come back in March and then start the season or sorry, April and start the season in, um, mid May, but they've got FIFA windows in April and June. They've said that they'll take advantage of them. So, you know, now you might actually get some consistent games and she believes cup is going to be kind of like, I think the most important one that they're going to need to really try to attract, international talent and hopefully the u.s is in a position where you can actually do that in a meaningful way um but they they do have like a full calendar planned ahead of the olympics to try to make sure that vlako andonovsky has full amount of of friendlies and and matches to work from as he has to you know select an 18 player roster just to make his life even more difficult (laughs) 
Meg, you have truly provided all sorts of phenomenal insight into all things U.S. Women's National Team and even beyond. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for listening, and the Total Soccer Show will be back again soon. 